2: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. where' prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
3: Slate's Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com slash hangup and using the promo code HANGUP. Hi, this is Slate's Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 29th, 2015. I'm Mike Pesca. Guess who's not here? It's Stefan Fatsis and Josh Levine, or rather it's not. You see, we've gone to a six-man rotation, because what we're trying to do is, as you know, the latest technology shows that everyone just has a set number of quips, so we want to keep Josh and Stefan's quip count low. Actually, they're on vacation, so I could invite two pretenders to the throne here, and we could blather blather about, I don't know, Bartolo Cologne, some other stuff that's going on in sports, mainly Bartolo Cologne, right? Now, let's not do that. Here's what I decided to do. I decided with the consultation of Josh and Stefan, to invite not other guests, but entire other podcasts. I'm populating this podcast with other sports podcasts, the world of soccer, the world of baseball, the world of hypothetical basketball. So the first up is Dummy. Dummy's a podcast from Howler Magazine. It's an actual print magazine about soccer. George Qureshi is the editor and founder of Howler, and here he talks with Allison McCann. She played on the Stanford women's soccer team, and guess what? She roped her former, she's now a journalist for 538, but she roped her former teammate Kelly O'Hara into this talk. You know, KO. She's the uh, defender with the U.S. Women's National team. So what they're going to talk about in this segment is a post mortem of the World Cup game against China and preview Tuesday's semifinal matchup between the U.S. and Germany. Take it away, George.
4: Hello and welcome to a special edition of Dummy, a weekly conversation among editors and friends of Howler magazine. My name is George Gracie. I'm the editor of Howler. We're taping this for our friends that hang up and listen. I agreed to this segment uh, in a trade that will see Mike Pesca appear on a yet-to-be-determined future episode of Dummy and also because you don't say no when the big leagues come calling. But honestly, I'm on shaky ground when it comes to baseball metaphors. So let me introduce the two other people on the line calling in from California. Allison McCann is a journalist at 538, who also happened to write much of uh, the Women's World Cup preview package for the summer edition of Howler. And I believe you're on your way up to Montreal for the U.S.-Germany semifinal on Tuesday, right, Allison?
5: Hey, George. Thanks for having me. I'm heading up to Montreal tomorrow. Super excited for the game on Tuesday.
4: Allison, that's exciting. You you played soccer at Stanford with our other guest. She's a defender for the U.S. women's national team, who uh, the rest of our listeners might recognize from uh, the right midfield in Friday night's quarterfinal win over China. And uh, after that match where she suffered a busted nose, if I'm not mistaken, she is one of uh, a relatively small number of people who can say they've actually bled for their country. Kelly O'Hara. Hey, Kelly. (laughs) Hi, guys. It was your nose, right? Is that right?
6: It was the nose. It is okay. It's still attached. And I don't think it's broken. So and it stopped bleeding. So it's all good.
4: Okay, everyone can calm down. down. (laughs) All right. So I want to talk about, uh, you know, the US plays Germany in uh, the semifinal on Tuesday night. But before we get to that game, I want to go back to the quarterfinal against China. First observation, the team was obviously playing without two key players, Megan Rapinoe, uh, was one of them, left midfielder usually. Um, she was suspended for yellow card accumulation. And what I saw, and I want to get your thoughts on this, was a much more balanced attack. Things were going up the right side where you were, Kelly, a lot more than I think they had been, at least from what I noticed in previous games. Is that by design or is uh, Rapino such a key player for the team that things naturally tend to go through her when she's on the field?
6: It was a bit by design. Our game plan going into it was... To, for me to stay wide and play as a true winger, which I tried to do. And yeah, I think that that was a great game plan put together by the coaches. And I think we executed it well and it worked well against China. Um, so yeah, it was it was a bit by design for sure.
4: Well, the other thing I noticed is that with Abby Wambach on the bench, she's she's such a key target player up top. Uh, Amy Rodriguez came in and, and she seemed to be so active checking back into the midfield. And, and, you know, Allison, I'm curious if you noticed this as well, but what I saw was, you know, where, whereas we might have been trying to bypass the midfield, it felt like a little bit earlier in, in the cup. There was just a lot more play uh, among the midfielders and sort of build up play than, than I'd seen before.
5: Yeah, definitely. I think when you said, um, they had a much more balanced attack, I think that definitely came from having a much more balanced midfield. This was the first game at least in my opinion, that we saw one of those central midfielders, this time Morgan Bryan, really sitting in that holding midfield position, which I don't think we had seen before with with Holiday and Carly Lloyd. And I think having Morgan Bryan in that sort of sitting role really just allowed Carly to, to roam more, which, you know, is what she's so great at. And that obviously proved to be a really fruitful um, sort of pairing since Carly scored the goal. So yeah, I think that the attack did so well, but I think that was because the the midfield had just so much more um, balance and and rhythm to it with having a a defined attacking player and a defined holding player.
4: So Kelly, you guys have come into these games, I think, you know, favorited usually the stats and Allison, Allison, you know about the stats, say that Germany is favorited for the semifinal. How does that change the way you guys approach it? I mean, you know, will you, will we see sort of a different approach to to the one we saw against, against China, which seemed to be novel in, in its own right? What are you guys planning for, for that?
6: If they are said to be favored, that's okay. They are number one in the world. So I guess by statistics, you should favor them, but that's not really that concerning for us. And in terms of what to look forward to and what we're thinking, we haven't gone over them yet. We actually have our, we'll have our game plan meeting tonight uh, to kind of review them as a team. So for me, I, I haven't really thought about them that much because You go for, you look at whatever game's ahead of you. And so I haven't really gotten ahead of myself. So, yeah, I'm just, uh, it'll be interesting to see what the coaches present at the meeting tonight and what they think will be the right way to go at this team.
4: Allison, can you talk about a little bit what you see in the midfield? I know we were speaking a little bit before and you You mentioned that the way that Morgan Bryan was deployed in the midfield allowed uh, a player like Carly Lloyd a little bit more freedom. And, and, you know, she obviously ended up scoring scoring the winning goal against China. What what were some of the changes that you saw that you thought were, were positive?
5: Yeah, I think, I mean, I just keep going back to the midfield to me. That was the biggest difference in the game against China. Uh, I wrote a little bit about this on Friday, that to me, the midfield before had, especially the center mids with Holiday and Carly Lloyd, um, they're both more attacking-minded players, and um, even in in some games, Jill had said uh, there wasn't, you know, sometimes there were two sixes, one was a six, one was an eight, but I I really just didn't think they had a good dynamic of of who should be going forward and who should be sitting all the time. To me, the China game was the first time we saw Morgan Bryan really playing as a true defensive center mid and Carly playing as an attacking center mid, and I thought that was just really really helpful to keep the the flow going through the midfield a lot better and um for me the subs too uh, i'm not just saying that because kelly's on the line but um i thought kelly o'hara and amy rodriguez who we hadn't seen at all this world cup um just brought so much energy and excitement you could see they were so um just psyched to be out there playing and it was really i think just brought a lot of life into this this team that we hadn't seen before and i think um subs can do that really well as you know hey i got nothing to lose this may be the only 20 minutes i get the whole tournament and you know just playing with excitement and fresh energy, and I, I thought that was awesome against China,
4: Kelly. What, what's your impression on that? I mean, is that something you you noticed as well? I, you know, I, I don't. I don't necessarily want to say it's a coincidence that when you came into the lineup, you know, a lot, <laughs> a lot more play started going through midfield. But it's something that I noticed, and I, I'm kind of curious from your perspective on the field how you experienced that. I know also we should mention to listeners that you, you know, in your previous uh, national team experience, you, you've been usually a defender. Uh, but I know you've you you played all over the field. So how do, you, how do you read that?
6: I'm not exactly sure what it was last game, but I do think that we had a really good and defined game plan and we stuck to it. And everybody played the role that was asked of them very well. Like you guys noticed, Mo was sitting, Carly was free to roam, and those are their strengths, I would say. You know, Tobin on the left is staying wide, but she also has the ability to, you know, come inside and um, with me... Pulling them wide on the right, I think that I just think it opened things up, and I think that um, for some reason it it worked really well, and it was uh, it seemed like we were having good fluid attack, and um, I think that's what we've been looking for this whole tournament.
4: Okay, I also want to talk about the strikers. I I, I believe the U.S. has played every single player they they brought as a striker. You know, I I don't think that's necessarily a normal thing for for a team to do in a tournament. Uh, Usually you have one or two starters, and then the rest uh, sort of, you know, they'll get in if there's an injury or or a late-game sub, but this time... Seems like everyone's gotten a, a, at least a, a start, uh, which is kind of amazing. I, I guess I'm curious about how how you guys see that as a team. Is that something that is it hard to get in a flow when when the lineup is is sort of in flux like that, or or does it kind of uh, just point to the, the many weapons that this U.S. women's team has uh, when it comes to attacking?
6: I think that it points to the many weapons. I mean, we all practice day in and day out with each other, or you know, against each other, and we do have such depth at that position. And and it's interesting because each player that plays forward has very specific tools. And they're, they are five very different players, I would say. So it's interesting because it's kind of like, the, I guess the coaches have at the, their disposal, they can choose who they think will fit what the what the game calls for. And I think that's probably why we've seen all five of them get significant minutes, which I think is, I think it's great. And I think that some people could argue it, it messes with the flow of the game or the flow of the attack. But like we saw last game, you know, A-Rod got her first start and she played incredibly well. And so I think it's just all about going in, seizing your moment and um, not worrying about anything else.
4: You know, when I was watching the game, I, you know, she had that, she had that really bad mishit when, when she was in on goal in the very beginning of the game. And I, I was a little bit worried, but she really recovered from that. And I, I, gotta say, I was really impressed with, uh, I don't know. I, I think as a striker, you, your confidence can get down. It sort of influences the way you play the rest of the game, but that wasn't the case for her at all. She was all over the field, really causing trouble. But let's go back to the defense a little bit. You know, the U.S. defense hasn't conceded a goal since the first game, the first half. Uh, I believe against Australia. Allison, you've done a lot of the preview uh, work, and you've been watching very closely. Has the U.S. faced an attack as good as Germany's so far? And uh, if not, or even if so, what are the ways that Germany's going to try to break down what has been probably, I think, the strongest defense in, in the tournament so far?
5: No, I mean, I, I don't think the U.S. has played uh, against an attack that is as good as Germany. It's going to be really interesting. Germany plays sort of in a 4-5-1, a, a or I guess a 4-2-3-1. Why they can be so dangerous is that they really like to attack with, with those front four players. Um, Sausage and Marzazan, who um, we're not sure if she'll be playing, uh, I know she's had some injuries, are phenomenal at combining together and um, Sausage dropping back in and Marzazan getting forward. So I, I think it'll be really interesting, not just um, the U.S. defense, but how the midfield and and the defense can work together at sort of shutting down this four-person firepower that'll that'll be coming at them. But yeah, I I'm not as concerned. I, I agree with you. I think the defense has been one of the most solid, uh, if not the most solid, in the whole tournament. And you know, Julie Johnson and Becky Sauerbrunn back there are have been phenomenal. And um, I think they're. I think that they'll actually do um, really well against Germany. I'm less concerned about the defense than I am matching up in the midfield.
4: Talk to me about the midfield. Why? What? What is the worry there? What? What, what I see is that, okay, Megan Rapinoe and and Lauren Holiday are coming back into the lineup. Their their suspensions are over. And yet, when in the game we were just talking about, we saw what we think is the most balanced midfield we've seen. Uh, So, is the problem integrating those two You know, very very important players back into a midfield that seem to be playing pretty pretty well without them.
5: No, I mean I I don't think having um, Rapino or Holiday back is going to be any sort of detriment. I mean they've been phenomenal players. The issue with the midfield will be again, are we going to have? um, I keep going back to this a holding mid and an attacking mid, and we saw this a little bit at the end of the Columbia game, even um, that Morgan Bryan came in at the end and we had. Um, Brian Lloyd and Holiday all in there together, and I think that could even work really well against Germany, who would be playing in a similar um, scenario. But yeah, I, I guess I am concerned if we stick to our four-four-two with flat four, and um, Germany's coming at us with you know five in the midfield almost, with Sausage drop, dropping in, and um, and to be so outnumbered there, I think could could really leave us exposed. So I, I do hope that. Will you know improve upon how it was in the China game with having a, a holding and an attacking mid, or even three mids in there, and getting Rapinoe back in stretching the wide uh, like Kelly did so well in the last game. I think that that will that will really prove to be crucial if if the U.S. plans to beat Germany, <laughs> which which we hope.
4: Kelly, can I ask you a question about, you know, it's really not about this tournament. It's it's more about, you know, what it's like to come in and play in a game like that quarterfinal. I think back to the peak of my own soccer career was making the ODP team as like an under 13 or under 12 kid in Florida. And, you know, I remember going to camp and thinking, man, these guys are so good. Like the, the level of play is so much higher than what I'm used to with my club team. Do you still have like, you know, I know you still play at a a very high level professionally, but when you go to a tournament like the World Cup, is it a noticeable bump from what you're used to? Do you have to be sharper? Do you have to be more in your game? How do you think about that? And, and, you know, or, or am I totally off base? Is it sort of just another game for you?
6: I feel like it's just another game. At the end of the day, I'm practicing with the national team many days out of the year and anytime we go to practice I'm playing against the best players in the world I personally think and so when we scrimmage at practice it's basically I feel like the number one team in the world against the number two team in the world so yes of course being at the world cup that's huge and it being a world cup game it's it's uh it's an incredible feeling but I felt very prepared and extremely ready for the game against China, um, even though I hadn't played yet. And I think that's just because of the work that's put in during practice.
4: Talk about that for a minute. W- what is it like to be watching this and then to know, okay, you're going to get a shot. Is that is that added pressure or do you feel like, finally, you know, I don't need to worry about how I play. I just want to get out there and run around and, and pass the ball and, and do well.
6: There's pressure, yeah, because the... Um, Outcome of the game is you're contributing to it, uh, being on the field, and you don't want to let your teammates down, but I didn't feel that much pressure. I was just, yeah, I was excited to be able to play. I love getting in games and getting minutes and, um, you know, came to the World Cup to win a World Cup and uh, help my team, so I was just happy to be able to contribute.
4: Okay, Allison, you're going to be at the game uh, in Montreal. Are you going – I know you have a couple of former teammates, some friends on on the team. Uh, are you going to be going as a fan, as a journalist? How, wh- are you going to be wearing face paint? What's going on?
5: <laughs> no, I I probably won't be going uh, in face paint, but mostly just because I, I didn't pack any yet. But, um, of course, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm going first and foremost. Um, as a journalist, I'll be uh, reporting up there for 538. But, you know, I obviously have many close friends, best friends uh, in Kelly too uh it would be hard for me to be there and not be be rooting for them and uh wanting them you know, to do well against Germany. I think this is going to be um, absolutely the best game of the World Cup. And um, it's going to be so exciting to see these two incredible teams go head to head. Um, So even as I am working, uh, I'll be there as a fan, uh, just a general fan of women's soccer either way. But, you know, deep down cheering uh, for the US.
4: I agree. Okay, Kelly, now that we know your nose is okay, we hope we hope you get back on the field. We're really rooting for you guys. Uh, Thank you for making some time to join us.
5: Of course. Thanks for having me, guys. I'll see you soon. Of course. Thanks for having me, George. And um, I'll see you up there, Kelly. Good luck.
3: That was George Coratio of Howler Magazine talking to Allison McCann of 538.com and Kelly O'Hara, a wingback on the U.S. women's national team. You can find the dummy podcast at HowlerMagazine.com. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. The mattress industry is, to coin a phrase, ripe for disruption. But that's bad because when you think of mattresses, you don't want to be disrupted. You want to be rested. You want to be cosseted. You want to be embraced. And that's what Casper does. Yes, yes, yes. Let them do the revolutionizing. What they will do is deliver a mattress to you. Yeah, I said deliver. Getting away with resellers and showrooms and the guy saying, oh, you need this kind of foam. No, a Casper mattress provides resilience and long lasting supportive comfort. It's one of a kind. It's a hybrid mattress, not unlike a a wing back or a, a forward mid, you know. It's a new hybrid mattress for the new NBA. It's a a lanky swingman of mattresses because it combines premium latex foam with memory foam. Now let's talk about the prices. Regular mattress, $1,500. Casper mattress, $500 for a twin size mattress. And it goes up from there, you know, $750 for a full size or $950 for a king size, but that's it. The highest mattress, the most expensive mattress they sell is under a thousand bucks. And here's the most amazing thing about Casper completely risk-free, free delivery, and returns within 100 days, period. It's that simple. Forget about lying. You lie down in a showroom. You're walking all day. You go to the mattress store. Oh, that mattress is good. What about the next night? What about the next 97 nights? So try a Casper mattress. That combination of obsessively engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices with the two technologies, the latex foam and the med- memory foam, that could appeal to you. So we have now a special offer. Get $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com hangup and using hangup as the promo code. Terms and conditions apply. All right, next up is a segment from Effectively Wild, a daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. In this segment, Sam Miller, the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, talks to Ben Lindbergh, who's his regular sparring partner. Ben writes for Grantland, and they're talking about the long-awaited return of pitcher Jose Fernandez to the Florida Marlins. Oh, Tommy John. But first, they debate the fate of White Sox manager Robin Ventura. Here's the problem. Everyone loves Robin Ventura. But here's the other problem. White Sox suck worst record in the al take it away ben and sam
7: welcome to a special hang up and listen episode of effectively wild the daily podcast from baseball prospectus brought to you by the play index at baseballreference.com i'm sam miller the editor-in-chief of baseball prospectus alongside ben Lindbergh of grantland.com hi ben hello how are you
8: very well thank you any banter I just want to say something in defense of the vote of confidence, a vote of confidence for the vote of confidence. Robin Ventura, White Sox manager, received a vote of confidence from White Sox president, Kenny Williams on Friday night. And there were many jokes about the dreaded vote of confidence. That adjective is almost always applied to the vote of confidence. And I just want to say that the the vote of confidence itself should not be an indicator that the manager Is on the wobbly chair as we refer to the hot seat It's a correlation causation thing, right? When you're in a situation where you are likely to receive a vote of confidence That's bad, but we knew that already just by looking at how your team is doing The White Sox are not doing well Clearly Robin Ventura's job is somewhat in danger Because that's how managers' jobs work But the vote of confidence itself, if we could control for the team situation if we could control for the degree to which the team is underperforming, I bet the vote of confidence would be a positive indicator.
7: I would disagree. I don't think that that's true. I think that a owner or GM or anybody who is in a position to, uh, to comment on a manager's job security would not even entertain the question up until it gets to a certain point where the job is really seriously on the line, like not just... To an outsider, we might speculate that it could be on the line, but that within the organization itself, the conversation has been had that it's on the line. And so, yes, if you could perfectly control for the team's status, uh, that's probably true. But I don't think you can control for the team's status. As earlier this year at Baseball Prospectus, Andrew Hopin wrote for us uh, quantifying the wobbly chair and looking at the likelihood that a manager was going to get fired imminently. And there's a lot of guesswork. the The context of each situation is different. And so simply underperforming, you know your team's expectations is not enough to say that he's definitely on the wobbly chair. And there's all sorts of factors like based on how long the manager has been there. And there are certain indicators like I think winning the wild card actually turns out to be a slightly negative indicator because it maybe suggests that you underperformed and how often you've made the playoffs with your current team in the past is a factor, and whether you're a first year manager is a factor. First year managers hardly ever get fired. And so there's all sorts of things that make it extremely difficult to control for that. And so realistically, I don't think that you could, I don't think you ever really know how likely it is that the manager is going to get fired. And so once it gets to the point that the owner is actually talking about it and is entertaining the question and is not. As they used to say in West Wing, don't accept the premise of the question. If you don't like what they ask, don't accept the premise of the question. So I think that up until a certain point, that's the the default answer. I think the fact that a reporter would go to an owner and ask this is pretty telling. I think the fact that the owner would answer is pretty telling. And I think the words themselves mean nothing. They're neither positive nor negative. They're completely worthless as evidence.
8: So you think that Kenny
7: Williams saying the that is the message, ben, the is the message.
8: <laughs> he doesn't believe that, that Ventura or his staff is to blame for the team struggles. That's the same to you as so-and-so is our manager. That's the most tepid form of the vote of confidence. So-and-so is our manager, which of course could be not the case as soon as you fire him. This was not a Robin Ventura is our manager. This was a somewhat stronger show of support. But you think it doesn't matter.
7: So to me, the so-and-so is our manager is actually slightly stronger as a vote of confidence than saying that I give him a vote of confidence. Because to me, so-and-so is our manager is in some sense not accepting the premise of the question. It's saying, come on, he's our manager. I'm not even going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. It, like, and that, to me, that's the answer that you give on day one. If you hire a guy and on day one, Someone who goes, Seriously, are you thinking of firing him? And you're like, No, I just hired him. He's our manager. Right. Like that that that's it's a, a more tepid version of the same answer. But it is your consistent answer. It is your answer throughout his tenure. And mm-hmm. if there's if there's nothing going wrong, if somebody went to, you know, Brian Sabian and asked about Bruce Bochi right now, he would look at you like you were kinda of crazy and say, Bochi's our manager. And that's your that's your, you know, your steady heartbeat of employment. Right. Uh, it conspicuously
8: seems to omit any mention of whether he will continue to be the manager. It's not he is our manager, and he will always be our manager.
7: It's a, It really you do have to see there the the way that they answer the question. If right. it's if they answer it with a huff and then turn and walk away, <laughs> that's different than if they answer it with a chuckle and then look like they're humoring the Howard Stern reporter who snuck into the press conference. Then that's a different that's a different kind of answer.
8: Okay. There's nothing in this article that indicates whether he chuckled or huffed.
7: All right. So uh, let's talk about Jose Fernandez quickly uh, Quickly for the rest of the show. Let's talk about it quickly for the rest of the show. Jose Fernandez of the Marlins is uh, set to return soon. Do you know the date? Again? Thursday, July 2nd. So this is uh, exciting news for people who like watching baseball, but, but only like watching great baseball because Jose Fernandez uh, is, pro- I don't know, I mean, before he got hurt, he was probably the second best pitcher in the game, even though he was only 21 years old. He had the best age 20 season for a pitcher since at least Dwight Gooden, and maybe even further, he was pitching even better in his second year. His fielding independent stats were the best in the majors at the time. It would have been good enough to be Clayton Kershaw's second best season had he kept on pitching that way. And then, as we've gotten used to, as we all expected, frankly, uh, he got hurt. In fact, on the Baseball Prospectus Annual's cover before last year, the caption under Jose Fernandez was something like, can baseball be trusted with a pitcher this good? We have gotten used to every pitcher being simply on his way to surgery. Some of them have just undergone it and are recovering, but those that have not, are on their way. So now he's coming back, and this is very exciting, of course. His rehab starts in the minors have been fairly good, fairly dominant. Underrated fun fact uh, about him is that in his high A starts, his last high A start was against the St. Lucie Mets, and he was younger than two-thirds of the starting lineup, which is not quite Bryce Harper facing all older pitchers than him on his rehab, but is still pretty good. His start
8: on Saturday against the Biloxi Shuckers was also his double-A debut. He skipped every level above A-ball because the Marlins brought him up what seemed to be prematurely, even though he was amazing from day one. But this was the first time that he had pitched above A-ball in the minor leagues.
7: And so now he'll come back, and we all expect, because we're spoiled, We I think that we are mostly expecting him to be good. Tommy John surgery has a, well, depends what you think of as very high, but it has a very high success rate. It saved many careers. We expect it will save his, and it's an interesting time to think about Jose Fernandez, perhaps also, because John Smoltz is about to go into the Hall of Fame in a month, and John Smoltz is, of course, the first pitcher who underwent Tommy John surgery to make it into the Hall of Fame, and if you look at john smoltz's career and you draw a line where the tommy john was and you look at before and you look at after it's pretty obvious that he wouldn't have made the hall of fame had he not uh, had that successful tommy john surgery john smoltz seems interesting to me because i feel like we've kind of gotten now to an an era where the pitchers who make the hall of fame aren't going to be the ones who stay healthy and show durability which is how it used to be it'd be you know You'd pitch a long time and you'd stay healthy, and that's how you made the Hall of Fame. Now it's much more about who can return because everybody gets hurt. Not really everybody. That's a little hyperbole, but virtually everybody gets hurt, misses you know, a year at some point. And what really differentiates the guys who have the great long Hall of Fame careers going forward is who comes back because while modern medicine saves a lot of these careers, they're not 100%. Not only have we seen guys who simply don't return to Tommy from Tommy John surgery, but we've seen a number of recently Hall of Fame careers get derailed, seeming locks for the Hall of Fame, really, in a couple of cases, get derailed because the injury came and the recovery didn't go well. So Johan Santana is the most obvious case. Johan Santana was clearly the best pitcher of his you know, eight-year peak in the major leagues and won't make the Hall of Fame because when he got hurt, he just never came back. It, he should have come back. But he didn't because sometimes they don't. And you could sort of lump CeCe Sabathia in that. He was extremely close to a full Hall of Fame resume and then simply lost it and doesn't seem to be coming back in a way that he's able to contribute any value. Matt Kane was a little bit less certain of a Hall of Fame case, but through age 29, he was on a pretty good trajectory. He hasn't been able to come back from his elbow injury. Justin Verlander is right now in the middle of perhaps ruining his Hall of Fame case if he doesn't come back healthy. And there's a whole bunch of guys like Hugh Darvish and Matt Harvey and Steven Strasburg and Jose Fernandez who are widely seen as the elite young pitchers in the game right now. And and every single one of them has had Tommy John surgery. And one of them probably will not come back and maybe more of them.
8: Maybe uh, we could include Roy Halliday on this list also, although he did not have Tommy John surgery. He had elbow issues. Cliff Lee has had elbow issues that haven't led to Tommy John surgery, but still might. He hasn't come back yet either. And, And this is Tommy John return season. It's not just Jose Fernandez. The Rays, Matt Moore, who is a former prospect as highly touted as Jose Fernandez, is coming back from his surgery on Wednesday, the day before Fernandez. The Yankees' Ivan Nova has just returned recently. And this is the time when it happens because these Tommy John surgeries and, and the injuries that lead to them tend to be clustered earlier in the season. There's a big spike of them that happens in spring training as guys try to come back from an offseason of not pitching. Or maybe they were hiding an injury all offseason and they can no longer hide it once they come back and their arm still hurts. So there is a spike in surgeries in March and April. And the return time of Tommy John surgery is somewhere around 14 months, or that's kind of the best case scenario for most pitchers. And so they are coming back in a wave now, last season's crop of spring injuries.
7: I mean, we're assuming that also Moore will come back healthy, although Moore is a little different. Moore is a very good pitcher, but sort of feels like Matt Moore is kind of coming back to avoid being the Sam Bowie of baseball because he was... A prospect ranked higher than Mike Trout and Bryce Harper in many circles. Mm -hmm. uh, The year that they were all prospects, he doesn't have Jose Fernandez's record of success, but uh, he is trying to establish something. And meanwhile, there are guys who should be back or that would be coming back and that aren't. There are guys who have had to have second surgeries. There are now guys who have had to have third surgeries. And, you know, Johnny Venters three years ago was, I don't know, probably the fourth or fifth best relief pitcher in baseball and had a you know this routine surgery that's supposed to be pretty easy to come back from and he has never come back he's still rehabbing he's still having surgeries and so we're not holding our breaths quite enough for the returns of fernandez and more as we should and the thing about it is that i don't really get the feeling that okay i'm gonna probably overstate the case here but i don't get a feeling that there's as much conversation within the game about how to avoid this injury Or how to avoid arm injuries as there is about how to improve recovery. I'm maybe projecting a little bit, but I feel like there's been a shift where now we've just probably have kind of conceded that not only are pitcher injuries inevitable and not only are they, you know, have they always been a huge part of the game, but they're probably the way that the game is played these days makes it even worse with pitchers throwing ever harder and harder and harder and with uh, young pitchers being kind of almost professionalized earlier and earlier and pitching for. Multiple year-round teams and not taking breaks because the way that they're scouted sort of requires them to be seen and to get on a track toward elite prospect status ever earlier. I think there's sort of just an acceptance that well they're gonna they're gonna get hurt and we we can't do anything about it. Teams that I talked to for a piece that I wrote for ESPN the magazine about Tommy John surgery uh, about a month ago, who scout these players. They're aware of the risk of these guys. And and when you ask them, well, why don't you draft the guys who aren't as risky instead of you know picking pitchers who've been overused from the time they were 12 years on, they say, well, you, you just don't really think about that. You just You know that there's going to be a lot of guys getting hurt. You draft the best talent and you kind of just Except that you're gonna lose a year of that guy at some point, and you're probably not gonna lose your job for that, but you will lose your job if you sign a bunch of guys who aren't very good. And one guy put it to me like this, he said, There's so much money in the game right now, and there are really so many pitchers in the game right now, because they've gone to a kind of a one inning reliever sort of mold of getting through the game, that teams don't really have to worry about injuries. They they can always find more pitchers. They can always find more guys who can hump up and throw 98 miles an hour in the seventh inning. And so they're willing to accept the risk of injury. And so instead of really thinking about how to avoid the injuries, which I think there isn't an answer for that, and I don't think there's anything uh, in the incentives of the game that will keep that from happening, it feels like, Again, the emphasis is more going toward recovery and toward figuring out better ways to rehab, better ways to do the surgery. There was an article, I don't know if you saw this earlier this spring in the Star Ledger by Mike Vorkunov about how there might be a surgery in the future in the near future that would help recovery time get cut down to 6 months instead of, you know, 12 to 18. And that would, of course, be a big change because then you wouldn't miss a whole year if you had surgery in August. You could be back by the start of the season. And so what we would essentially see in that scenario is just as many Tommy Johns, probably more Tommy Johns, but less impact from each one of them. When I talked to people about sort of futuristic solutions for this problem, I raised the possibility of synthetic ligaments that wouldn't snap. They said, yeah, probably not, but there will be like stem cell therapies that will help the body recover much more quickly when it is injured. And so I think what you're getting to is basically just an acceptance that every one of these guys who comes up at 21 is going to have so much strain put on their arms that it's essentially eventually going to snap, but that we're going to change the game so that those sorts of things are less career threatening and people will be able to pitch through them, which is a kind of odd, right? Like we have a a sport that is So destructive to one of the key players on the team that we just get used to people being hurt, but less destructive because we're able to get them back on the field more often. It's more sad days, I guess, when pitchers get hurt, like the day that Jose Fernandez got hurt, but less long-term sadness because they come back.
8: Yeah, well, I think you and I and other writers and talkers have the luxury to think about why all of these injuries are happening. And every time there is a cluster of torn ligaments, we get think pieces and hand wringing about how we can stop this and what's causing it. Is it youth workloads? Is it guys throwing too hard? Is it usage? Many different theories and possible solutions. And if you're a team, you don't necessarily have the, the time to worry about stopping these injuries. That would be the best case scenario, but you just kind of have to cope with it and accept that it's going to happen. Like Sandy Alderson, the Mets general manager, has had several pitchers have Tommy John surgery in his organization, including Matt Harvey, who came back this year successfully. And he seemed to take the approach this winter that it's going to happen. It's inevitable. So I'm just going to stockpile starters and I'm going to have seven or eight or nine starters because when one of them gets hurt, when Zach Wheeler goes down with Tommy John surgery, then I'll still have some guys. So that's kind of the team perspective. And every Tommy John surgery is deemed successful. As long as the patient doesn't die on the table, a Tommy John surgery is deemed successful. But of course, we never know whether it's really going to be successful until... A year or more after that, when you see how the rehab is going and there are always the dreaded setbacks and the tingling in the fingers and the numbness and the residual pain and all of these things that are a normal part of the process and then can also be an abnormal part of the process. And so pitcher injuries have always been a big part of the game. There's always been an understanding, I think, that careers can end suddenly. This was the case, even people talk about the good old days when pitchers threw 300, 400 innings in a season, and supposedly that worked out well for everyone. That is not the case. There were many, many pitchers it did not work out on. And you could go back through baseball history and find countless phenoms and people who were off to great starts who mysteriously stopped pitching well. And we didn't know at the time that it was because their ulnar collateral ligament was torn, but pitchers would just try to pitch through it and they would be worse or they would just retire and their careers would end early and we would forget about them. And we have selective memory about pitchers and injuries in the past. And so the only difference now is that we actually expect guys to come back. We still know the injuries are going to happen, but because we've seen this surgery become something close to routine and we've seen it work for so many guys and they come back throwing just as hard as they did. And there's been a lot of good research about the Return rates and it differs depending on how you define it. Is it just getting back to the level you were at and pitching at that same level? Is it actually pitching as well as you were pitching before? But the return rate is, you know, something like 80% is sort of the generally cited figure, which theoretically means that one out of five guys just doesn't come back at all. And we should probably appreciate that Jose Fernandez is not one of those five. It's like a Russian roulette sort of thing with starters where we could have lost him. He could have been one of the five. And and I think there's some evidence that the better you are at the time you get injured, the better your chances are of coming back. So maybe it wasn't really a one in five chance of not coming back when you're talking about one of the best pitchers in baseball. But still, there was a non-zero chance that that was the last of Jose Fernandez, that we might not have seen him again or that he would have come back as a soft tosser just trying to to get by and that doesn't seem to be the case he's dominating minor league hitters he's reportedly touching 98 he seems to have most of his stuff intact and that's something to be grateful for cuz we could have lost Jose Fernandez yep we could have all right so it's unfortunate that he's coming back to a Marlins team that is not playing well and just lost Giancarlo Stanton and there's nothing really at stake in those games but he's back we get to watch yep.
7: him. Yep, now they just have to solve the hamate uh, bone epidemic <laughs> right. that took John Carlos Stanton from us. Yes. By the
8: way, Dr. Neil Alatrash, Fernandez's surgeon. Only sixth on the all-time leaderboard of Tommy John surgeries performed, well behind James Andrews and the late Frank Job and Louis Yocum in Tommy John surgeon Q rating, but he did once operate on Sylvester Stallone's and Arnold Schwarzenegger's rotator cuffs on the same day, thereby saving the Expendables film franchise. Arguably, a greater service to humanity than bringing back Jose Fernandez. So Matt Moore Wednesday, Jose Fernandez Thursday enjoy our returned pitchers and hope that they get universal votes of confidence without any atrocious performances that could cause Bob Costas to invoke their dead relatives. Thanks for listening.
3: That was Baseball Prospectus Editor-in-Chief Sam Miller talking with Ben Lindbergh, a staff writer at Grantland. These guys talk every day at the Effectively Wild podcast at BaseballProspectus.com. I love all the podcasts we're playing, but I never miss Effectively Wild. I want to tell you about a live event, Outward, Slate's LGBTQ blog, is going to be at City Winery in New York on July 13th. Not not a lot to discuss in the world of uh, gay rights, huh? <laughs> They're discussing the impact of the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage. They'll be live on stage, as I said, July 13th. J. Brian Louder will be there. Mark Joseph Stern will be there. June Thomas will be there. Those are the outward mainstays. Special guest, Evan Wolfson, just wrote a very good op-ed in the Times. He's the attorney considered by many to be the architect of legal same-sex marriage. And Ted Allen, the guy from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and the Food Network shows Chopped and All-Star Academy. He'll be talking about gay stereotypes in the media. Plus, audience members will get the chance to pose their very own ask-a-homo questions. Be in the audience for Outward Live, July 13th, At City Winery in New York for tickets, go to slate.com/slash NYC Outward. Slate Plus members get 30% off their ticket purchases. That's slate.com/slash NYC Outward. Finally, our friends at 538 ran a crowdsourcing project for their podcast, Hot Takedown. They asked 538 readers to help fix the NBA draft. As a Knick fan, I'll give you one idea: take the keys away from Phil Jackson. All right, enough of the editorializing. Because here's Hot Takedown producer Jody Avergan, 538 writer Neil Payne, and ESPN's Kate Fagan discussing one reader proposal. Involving live bears. We are asking folks
1: for their ideas for how to fix the NBA draft and stop tanking in the NBA. And we posted a form online and got almost 7,000 submissions. I am slogging my way through these submissions. I'm going to try and read basically all of them. And next week, on next week's show, uh, you three, the panel, are going to talk about some of our favorites. But today, I wanted to offer a little update on. Uh, the very non-serious proposals that we've been getting—we've <laughs> been getting a number of them, including what I think is probably the fan favorite thus far, which is an idea from Bob in New Orleans about how to fix the NBA lottery. And he writes in, actually, Kate, do you want do you want to yeah, read this for I us? Want to read All it. Right, here you go. Uh,
9: sight unseen, here. Yeah. Okay, happening. Kate. Do we this know is Bob? Is a Pelicans through. fan or anything? We just—we don't know okay. anything about Bob okay. other
1: than he's a genius.
9: Okay, Bob from New Orleans. This is his plan. Each team is required to bring a fish to the lottery ceremony. Each one has to be a different species, parentheses, salmon, tuna, etc., and release it into a pool. Then Adam Silver will ride a bear into the pool, (laughs) and the fish that the bear eats first wins the lottery. If the bear eats Adam Silver, then it goes by worst record first.
1: This is a foolproof plan. I would watch this. We can call it the tank tank. You know, when you take into account the fact that it's happening in the spring when the bears are coming out of hibernation, and they're particularly hungry. I really think it adds a sense of danger. That said, I am not sure if Bob has thought through all the implications. For instance, what kind of bear is it? Do the teams Mm -hmm. get to choose what kind of bear or what kind of fish? Because I think this could severely affect the draft lottery. And Neil, I know you've actually done some research into this.
10: That's right. Yeah, I ran some numbers. Uh, The last 15 spring seasons (laughs) along the rivers of the Yukon Territory and other wilderness areas, and uh, it's pretty striking. For instance, if the bear is an Alaskan grizzly bear, there's a 74% chance that it will eat the salmon first. Uh, If you end up with a polar bear, uh, you better hope there's an Arctic char or a four-horned scalpin somewhere in that pond uh, and mexican grizzly bears which are technically brown bears they don't even eat much fish it's just mostly fruits and berries so you'd be out of luck
1: so there's lots of ripple effects from this plan i think we still need to run some of the numbers I and mean, what if you end up with a panda that's technically a bear right. what if it's a memphis grizzly this thing can easily be rigged you know. for memphis to
0: get the number one pick i'd argue
9: but if it's a koala, that's actually actually like a marsupial. Mm. I just want to let people know. Right. Don't get International caught up in-
1: expansion for the
0: NBA. Don't get
9: caught up thinking that's a bear. It's not. People will let you know it's a marsupial.
1: So think about the slogans that fans could get into. There's, there's obviously tank for the tank. There's, there's a pout for the trout. Suffer for the puffer. I am into <laughs> this plan. I think it could work. I think it would get incredible ratings.
9: This also sounds like some sort of dystopian young adult novel mm. happening here,
3: by the uh, way. Hunger Games needs a new sequel. They're NBA running out of version. book material. Yeah. So there are all these other proposals that the hot takedown guys discussed. There was something called the wheel. I don't. It doesn't have to be a wheel. It's just once a year you get the number one pick. And you always know the 30 teams know when it's going to be. And there's a lot of certainty. There's something called the tombstone date. So the tombstone date is the day your team's eliminated from the playoffs. And then every game you win after the tombstone date, you add lottery balls. So it incentivizes you to win after you know you're eliminated. And then, and this is daring, wouldn't this be fun? a lottery playoff. So all the teams that didn't make the lottery play off for lottery position. So even if your team stinks at the end of the year, there's a special tournament for you to try to get the first pick.
1: The last one is um, called the Futures Plan. And this was submitted by the, they call themselves the Futures Draft Planning Committee of Samuel and Cody uh, here in in New York City. They start the proposal with a Kanye West quote, which I got to I gotta love the quote is I'm living in the future. So the present is my past. My presence is a present. Kiss my ass. Sam Henke. (laughs) Can we play that
10: clip? I'm living in the future. So the present is my past. My presence is a present. Kiss my ass. Sam Henke. And I don't know if that's
1: a direct (laughs) quote, um, Okay, in a nutshell, this is how they write. This, this I think, is the highest upside, if you, can, if you get it, mm-hmm. plan out there. Neil is getting psyched here. Okay, in a nutshell, they write, Teams tank because they own their own picks. We would eliminate tanking by creating a world in which nobody owned their own pick, but instead owned stock market style futures on other teams' placement. So what happens is during each NBA draft, you make a pick for a player, and then at the same time, you make a pick for another team that you're going to tie your fate to next year. So last year,
0: the Rockets picked, whenever the Rockets picked, 10th, and the Timberwolves were still on the board, and they said, we select with our 10th pick of the draft, uh, whoever the Rockets selected last year, and also the Timberwolves uh, draft pick pick next year okay now the Timberwolves finish worst this year so the Rockets pick first correct right? and they have first choice at the whole board
1: correct correct okay so now this year the Rockets are picking first and they can then say okay next year's season the 2016 season I think the magic are gonna be the worst team in the league and I'm gonna we're gonna tie our fate to the magic so here is my insight not sure if it's a critique or not about this it would make
0: very clear who the best gms were perhaps because the people the gms that's who sized up their competition the best perhaps could pick in the top 5 every year there is there is a feedback loop in this that mm-hmm. could be super dangerous and stratify the league within five years of it coming into play.
10: Right. There's no element of randomness to this after however you decide to sort of start the mechanism. Once the mechanism is going, in that Rockets example, the Rockets got that number one pick because of how they had picked you know whoever they had before. Say they had you know Cleveland two years ago, uh, and and so that earned them that tenth pick. But then you know if the T were still on the board, then they were able to pick the T wolves. So it sort of builds upon itself continuously year after year. And yeah, it would really play into who had you know the best projection system or the best you know the shrewdest eye for who bad teams were going to be. And that's sort of the appeal of it is it removes that randomness aspect. But is that really what we want out of a system like the draft? Which theoretically, at least right now is, and this is true across all the sports, I think fundamentally at their core, they're designed to redistribute talent, not to funnel talent to the shrewdest GMs.
9: Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually do like this idea. I think some of the language maybe is what I'm getting hung up on, uh, because what I'm hearing is that it's almost like a if you make a shot and you get the ball back. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like make it, take it. Because you right. were right about Minnesota, and now because you're right about Minnesota, you get the first pick and you get to pick which team's going to be worst because and here it says the worst record gets to pick other teams finishing positions but that's not actually what happens
10: that is a that's like kind of a twist that you could add on and i think this is the big weakness of the system is determining Who gets, like, what order of preference for next year's future? But then the Timberwolves would have first dibs at who they got to choose other than themselves. That's another important aspect of this is you can't pick yourself, so uh, you you can't say... Yeah, because then you would tank. But determining who gets that order of preference, I think, is the big kind of controversial point of the system.
9: You would need two separate drafts for this. You would need the... Drafts of the players. Yeah, yeah, the player. And then based on and the, team the team's records, the draft of who they're picking for the following year. That's a
1: possibility. I
9: think you would need to do that. Yeah. Otherwise, you're 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 not going to be able to get redistribute talent. But you don't think that
1: there's enough enough fluctuation with it year to year that like you could potentially. If you ended up with the Thunder and you're like, oh, we're screwed. You know, we, we, we were the last team to pick for futures and we ended up with the Thunder and they're really good. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're not that good because they're, they're injured and all of a sudden you end up with a good pick. So now there's like another team is sort of f- f- cycling. I don't think that it would be as, as stagnant the, as you guys think. Yeah, in and the that interesting sort of group.
10: thing about this is we can't even use the current state of the league as sort of a template that we could say, oh, well, it's very obvious that the Sixers were going to be bad. Yeah, but that's because the Sixers had this intention to tank right. with the lottery point. system. It's pretty pretty likely that the teams would become more and more compressed toward 41 and 41 each year, which is that what we want? Do we want to foster parity in that way? But then, uh, like we said earlier, something that cuts against that is the picking skills of the GM. And you might have, like if Pat Riley is just this uber genius at predicting who will be the worst team in basketball every year, he could theoretically run the table and just continually get those number one picks.
0: Neil, I can't believe this, but you're sort of selling me on it. (laughs) <laughs> A couple other concerns, insights, whatever you might, might, might want to call it. Qualm. Would would the picking of the next year's futures? Okay, so when the when Timberwolves pick the Magic, I think is the case that we're using, happen before the Magic. Pick their draft pick. That's it a would, great right? Question. Because in this case, then <laughs> it really matters if I trust the Magic GM to pick a good draft pick or not. But because no, the it Magic GM after. pick a bad player just to spite. No, the team no, that not at all. But maybe features? I think the Magic GM is a is a dummy, and I think he's going to botch the sixth pick this year. Then that's just and another reason
1: to pick them.
9: We also need to know if it's going to be public. Right. The drafting of the futures. Oh, yeah. Do you because know who has you? Because that's a lot of yeah. locker room material. Right, That's the best yeah. part like of this. If, is if it's public? public, if I go, if I'm the Magic and I go up there, I'm like, the Pelicans are going to be the worst. That's locker room material. That's so good. But Or is it a grand reveal right before the draft?
0: Oh, high drama. I like that. But also there's a player health concern that I have, which is that if I am the Rockets and I control the Timberwolves... Uh, Futures that year I might ask Dwight Howard To really hack at Ricky Rubio to try and sabotage Rubio's Let's assume need. decent
9: ho- human behavior. Yeah, let's assume competitive behavior. behavior. Well, then you
1: could do that now, right? You could just go but, out in the playoffs and tell, let's say you're the Rockets, and you tell uh, whats his name Beverly to go after Westbrook. Like, no one would ever do that.
10: <laughs> all the things that you're talking about, like the apocalyptic scenarios, that when this is taken too far, they're at least taken too far in the direction of competition and Agreed. trying to win. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest selling point of all with this system is... It completely divorces your draft status from the quality, either good or bad, of your own team, and therefore there is zero incentive to tank. But
0: still allows for the the quality of your intellect to have some effect on your play. It's not random, right? But okay, so let me just ask this question. Let's
1: let's let's tease. Let's say
0: we bring the futures to Adam Silver, right? right? Is it, it do we care whether or not our proposed solution has any Shot of really because I what I like about the futures is it's not part of the conversation yet that at least I know of mm-hmm. where the the wheel is mm-hmm. and Tombstone, I guess, isn't but you know, maybe entertaining it's, it's not as that hell radical, tournament, right? Is already and so what I like about the futures is that we could perhaps bring something. New to the NBA that maybe hadn't already been discussed. We being, of course, the uh, futures planning draft planning and, committee. And, Kanye West also. and assuming
1: and assuming that Adam Silver just like opens every piece of mail
0: that shows up <laughs> in his office. So 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 that's what I like about the futures most. I'm concerned about the ramifications, but that is sort of the fun of it maybe,
1: which is that you would be able to see how people exploited the different advantages. Every single one of these plans, I think, is going to have. Some jockeying if there was and a perfect plan, the NBA right.
9: would already have it. Well, okay. I don't know
1: about that, but anyway, <laughs> it's unanimous, the futures. Really? It's unanimous. It's that simple. We will print this out, we will put it in the mail, and we are going to send it to Adam Silver
3: and hope, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get a response. In part three of the crowdsourcing project, Hot Takedown gets an impressively detailed response from NBA commissioner Adam Silver.
1: This is the most exciting uh, piece of mail has ever been. I think it's actually the first piece of mail I've received uh, here at 538. And it was, I received a piece of mail from the NBA commissioner himself. Adam Silver sent me an extremely urgent FedEx with um, a three-page response to our proposal, replete with an actual Adam Silver signature at the end. And it was basically... Uh, an acknowledgement of kind of our project's success and saying, this is great that you solicited all these ideas. And then a kind of point by point rebuttal to the actual plan that we had chosen. And then a little bit at the end saying, look, our our office acknowledges that a lot of people think tanking is a problem, um, or that the lottery needs to be fixed. Actually, there were some very uh, <laughs> sort of carefully hedged language in there. But, um, you know, Neil and 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 Kate, you guys had a chance to read this letter and just sort of think about the way this office is, is thinking about the future of the NBA draft lottery. Any quick reactions?
9: Well, I was impressed with the length and the detail in the response. Um, I was wondering, and, and Chad maybe will be on the same wavelength here, that I thought some of the issues that Adam Silver brought up and why the futures proposal wouldn't work felt like ones we had kind of talked about. And then we, we once we, totally understood the intricacies of the plan, we realized that the initial flaws in the plan don't actually exist in the same way you think they do. So I felt like maybe there's a possibility that we that this futures plan can still be alive. Right. And certainly, uh, in
1: the spirit of this whole project, which was about sort of soliciting ideas and and trying on, you know, uh, we've all been getting lots of emails from listeners with tweaks and and, and other adjustments to the futures plan. And it feels like we are moving forward uh, in adjusting this particular novel concept towards something that could actually be viable. Now, I didn't you know, forward all those emails to the Silver Office. I thought that's how uh, you two had it. Yeah, now <laughs> no, um, it's mostly it's mostly Snapchat between the two of us. I'm oh, sure. okay, yeah. different uh, medium. But again, you know, the willingness to engage and our offer to the commissioner to come on the show is still out there, and hopefully, we can then you know really get into the nitty gritty <laughs> and <laughs> sort of say, hey, here, okay, pin them down. You have this problem. Well, here's a possible solution. You have this problem. Here's another possible solution. And one thing
0: that this this whole month long process has really made me think about is whether or not big rule changes in sports should happen the way and this is going to turn many listeners off the way that like governmental open discussions happen where a rule proposal is posted, uh, a rule change proposal is posted when like the FCC wants to sell off broadband or or, uh, wavelengths or something. And then um, people will respond and different advocacy groups will come in and say, well, you don't realize what that's going to do to the to the um,
1: cable access TV or something. And then, you know, South Africa drops a hundred thousand dollars in unmarked bills in your, you mean 10 million. million. (laughs) Uh,
0: But anyway, but I, if, if uh, the commissioner is good enough to come on one thing I'll ask him is whether or not he's ever, the, the NBA has ever thought about opening up rule changes to the public before they go live, if you will, and whether there's anything to be gained from that when you bring in 7,000 fans to have some ideas.
9: And it's such a good point because the way the the world has changed the last 15 years with social media and how a lot of things get crowdsourced now, is sports going to play along with that? Because you, you can say you want to engage in a lot of ways and then you've got great Twitter handles now with with sports teams, but are they willing to actually like s- source information differently?
0: And you set me up for the perfect segue because on our website, five thirty eight, you can annotate Commissioner Silver's letter to Jody with perhaps some rebuttals to Silver's rebuttals to the proposal. And so if you go to 538.com, you'll be able to see the whole letter and be able to highlight different parts of the letter and um, and and you know respond that way. Um, and so uh, if you have any thoughts about about that, please do that. Uh, and
1: thanks, Jody. Thanks, you guys.
3: Hot Takedown is a podcast by 538.com. And we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com/slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com/slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Emma Zayner. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer and the executive executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang up and listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.